Rick says good enough. Let's open with prayer. Lord, we thank you for this new day, and we thank you that each of us have made it here this morning. And we pray that you would be with us and watch over us as we uh, continue this work, and that you would give us your spirit, and that you would give us your peace. Hear our prayer now in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, um, Edie won't be here this morning because Roger and Edie on their way to church got rear-ended. Um, they wound up on the side of the road, the person that hit them wound up in the median, um, but no injuries, but I would imagine um, cars injured. So Raj said, not where we can't make it. And Nancy won't make it. Nancy Schuler won't make it. Maybe she's watching. I just saw her note that they have Sherry's car to drive, but Philip, um, I'll repeat this because Maury just came in. Um, so no Roger and Edie this morning, Maury. No Roger and Edie this morning. They had an accident on the way to church. So, um, and Nancy Schuler had, Philip Fast was driving Nancy's car yesterday and totaled her car. So, so be careful on the road. <laughs> Fortunately. A white Ford van? Is it a van? Oh, I don't know. Is that yours? Oh, okay. <laughs> now it's it's nice to live close on a day like today when the fog is like like Corinne said. When I first moved to Sacramento, that first Christmas I lived here, we took a ride to look at Christmas lights and it got foggy like this. It's like we just went home because we couldn't see anything anyway. So Really? Yep. <laughs> yeah, this thought this fog is thick, so glad we all made it. All right. Now we are going to now we have class today. We're not going to have class next week, Christmas. We're not going to have class New Year's. We'll have then class again on the 8th, all right? So no Sunday school for the next two weeks, as we'll have the two holidays. <laughs> hey, Maury, no class for the next two weeks, Christmas and New Year's. So we just have service at 11 o'clock on Christmas and service at 11 o'clock on New Year's. Okay. All right. Now this section of this section of um, the book of Romans will probably spend a little bit of time on because it's kind of a hinge. I always try to remind you that the the chapters and verses are additions to the text that are far later than the text themselves, and so. At the beginning of chapter one, we had this version of the Greeks. In chapter two, we had the Jews. And in chapter three, we had no one is righteous. So that's sort of Greeks and Jews together. 
in chapter 4 and then the first half of chapter 5, we've been looking at the relationship of Greeks and Jews and the law. And now the second part of chapter 5, verse 12 and forward, we have another hinge section where we're going to look again at without the distinction of Greeks and Jews. Okay? And you know that because we're going to start with Adam. And I'd like to begin this morning by just reading through Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the text. Now, again, this is a paraphrase. It's not a translation. In a sense, Eugene Peterson is telling us what he thinks of it. So often we start with the... Um, Often we start with the five versions, version of this, but this morning I'm going to begin with the, the single author versions, interpretations of this passage. Because this section, this passage here is a very, it's a, it's, a, it's a part of scripture that everyone's paying a lot of attention to because of sort of Genesis and science issues. I like what Eugene Peterson does with it, though. You know the story of how Adam landed us in the dilemma we're in? First sin, then death, and no one exempt from either sin or death. Now keep that in mind because the question of how to manage verse 12 is a big one. That sin disturbed relations with God in everything and everyone. But the extent of the disturbance was not clear until God spelled it out in detail to Moses. So what you have here with Adam is the full view. And when we focus on Moses, we look at Israel. So you see this. One of the ways to think about the Bible and how the Bible is the story of the world is you see this constant scaling, let's call it. So let's say we have Adam, because of course in Genesis, Adam is the father of us all, okay? And then you have Israel and Moses, and Israel and Moses is to be a priest to the nations. So priests are in some ways concentrated smaller versions of the whole. You see this sometimes in the Bible when you have temple. Temple is a microcosm of the cosmos. Okay? And so Israel is in some ways a microcosm of all of humanity. And what we're going to see is that this is going to go all the way down to Jesus. Where we're going to go from Adam to Moses to Jesus, and then Jesus all the way back out to Adam. That's the thrust of this section. So you know the story of how Adam landed us in the dilemma we're in. First, death, first sin, then death, and no one exempt from either sin or death. That sin disturbed relations with God in everything and everyone. Now, in 
Calvinist doctrine, we call that sentence total depravity. Sin disturbed, well, it's first sin, then death, and no one exempt from either sin or death. That sin disturbed relations with God and everything and everyone, that's total depravity. It doesn't mean that everyone is as bad as they could be. None of us here are as bad as we could be. Neither are we as good as we could be. We're in the middle. But every area of our life is impacted by our sin. That's what total depravity means. So death, this huge abyss separating us from God. Now, in our, in our Wednesday evening men's group, we've, been, we've started to read Genesis. And we talked about the fact that in the garden, you have this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God tells Adam, on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And I remember reading that as a kid. And then you read chapter three, he and Eve eat the fruit. And I always sit there, sat there and wondered, why didn't they die? On the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Right. Right. Everything is going to start being corrupted now, and that corruption leads to death. And so he didn't die physically that day, like poison might kill him, but it's a different kind of poison that began a work in him to the point that what is written here, first sin, then death, and no one exempt from sin and death. So death, this huge abyss separating us from God. See what Peterson does, this is really a very skillful section from Eugene Peterson. He sees death as this abyss separating us from God. He sort of redefines death. Dominated the landscape from Adam to Moses. So death dominated the landscape. This huge abyss between us and God dominated the landscape. Also, as we were reading this past week in our men's group, we read Genesis chapter 4, and we noticed that it's very subtle, but at the beginning of Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel lived in sort of a communion with God. Genesis chapter 4 is in some ways a reiteration of chapter 3, because when after Cain killed his brother Abel, God sends him from his presence. So in, a, in another way, that, that's sort of a way of Cain getting kicked out of the garden too. Now, Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden in chapter 3, but Cain is now exiled from his presence, and he's anxious about that, and so God puts a mark on Cain. But you see the same pattern over and over, and it gets worse and worse and worse. It seems God gets further and further and further away as humanity gets more and more sinful. And so you see this dynamic that you see in the Old Testament where our sin 
which again is deeply related to our death, separates us from God. And what you see then in Moses and Israel is this attempt, can a holy God live in the midst of an unholy people? So you have the tabernacle and all of the rules of clean and unclean, and you have that separation from God, but it's sort of an administered separation. They're close, but not too close. And so that's what Israel is trying to get at. So you, again, you see this, um, you see this relationship of all, and then Israel and Moses as a microcosm, and then Jesus as all the way down there. And that's the purpose of the temptations that come early in the gospel. The question, will Jesus, so Israel comes out of Egypt and they are tempted in the wilderness. And how well do they do? Not well. They grumble about the water. They grumble about the food. After they're given the law, they make a golden calf. Um, they fail the test of temptation in the wilderness. Jesus passes the, the, the trial of the temptation in the wilderness. So you see this relationship between macrocosm and microcosm. Even those who didn't sin precisely as Adam did, but disobeyed a specific command of God, still had to experience this termination of life. Now, I think Peterson, I think this is really an excellent set. There's, as with any attempt to paraphrase something as complex as the Bible, you're, it's going to be uneven, but I think this is a really excellent part of the message. Because what's happening in chapter 1 in Romans is Paul looks at the, gen, the Greeks, as he calls them, who don't have the law and says, it's a catastrophe. And then he looks at the Jews who have the law and notes they're a little better, but in a, in, a, in a certain sense, they're both a little better and a little worse. They're a little better in that their moral performance, on average, generally speaking, better than the Greeks, but they're worse because the potential that they had as compared to the Greeks was more because they were given the law. And so when we get into this whole section of Paul and the law and the Jews and the law expanding sin, so let's say, let's say the Greeks in terms of their moral performance, let's, let's say the Greeks in terms of their moral performance are down here. And let's say the Jews, in terms of their moral performance, are here. So, okay, good. The Jews are outperforming the Greeks in terms of their moral performance. But God gives them the law, and if they were to fulfill the law, they should have been up here. And so on one hand, they're better than the Greeks. But the Greeks only had 
let's call it law number one. They didn't have revelation. And so the Greeks didn't have the kind of opportunity and potential that the Jews had. And so in this space right here, you have in the Jews the judgment of the law. Whereas the Greeks, in some ways, they didn't know any better. And I, I told the story of two kids who tagged up cars in the faculty parking lot. The one kid comes from a bad home, father abandoned them, mother struggling with alcohol, kid always has to fend for himself. He does this in the faculty parking lot. The principal sees him and says, I could have guessed. The other kid comes from a good home, taught right from wrong, went to church. He gets caught doing the same thing as the other kid. The principal throws the book at him. Why? He should have known better. Exactly. This is where you get the saying, to whom much is given, much will be required. And it's basically what Paul is saying is that the Jews were given much. So much more was required of them, and they failed. The Greeks were given less. They failed too, but here's the difference between them. Okay. Even those who didn't sin precisely as Adam did, that's the Greeks, by disobeying a specific command of God, still had to experience this termination of life. Greeks die, Jews die. This separation from God, that's death. So in the book of Revelation, sometimes they talk about the second death. And that second death in the book of Revelation is what we call today often hell. Well, what is hell? Hell is final separation from God. Final, complete separation from God. But Adam, who got us into this, also points ahead to the one who will get us out. So, Adam got us into this, but, uh, you know, Christians look back at Genesis 3, uh, it said of the woman that she's going to have a child who will crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent will bruise the heel of that one. So it's in the seed of Eve that the undoing of this calamity will come. And Paul is now saying, that's Christ. Now, I know I'm going to get flack for this. It isn't Moses. Moses was a prophet. Moses, book of Deuteronomy says, the most humble man in the world. Moses, great man, through whom God works, not perfect, but great. 
It's not through Moses that the final resolution of the problem of Genesis 3 comes. It's through Christ. And that's a huge statement for someone like Paul. Because, of course, Paul is from a community that says, you know what? It's the law. And the problem with the law is this part right here. The law wants us to live up to it. And the truth is, none of us can. So the beginning, uh, the beginning of um, the Gospel of Matthew, Christ fulfills the law. Christ addresses this section right here. 15 through 17. Yet the rescuing gift is not exactly parallel to the death-dealing sin. I really like what Peterson did with this section here. Yet the rescuing gift is not exactly parallel to the death-dealing sin. In other words, we have the story of Adam and Eve and their fall, and we see in the book of Genesis this slide of humanity. So, so in a sense, if we, look at, if we look at potential, if the Greeks are here and the Jews are here, this, say, this let's say, is the potential upside, and this, say, is the potential, let's call it death, Humanity starts to slide in this direction. That's what we see from Genesis um, 1, through, 1 through 6. And then after the flood, we see it from 10 to 11. Humanity is sliding down into death. And, of course, with the law of Moses, we're moving up towards this potential. Yet the rescuing gift and notice again, it's a gift, is not exactly parallel to the death-dealing sin. The sin leads us down to death. The rescuing gift is going to bring us up to our potential. If one man's sin puts crowds of people at, dead end, at the dead-end abyss of separation from God, and now, again, that's... What's happening here? One's man's sin starts taking us down. And, and what you see is this weird thing about sin. How sin is contagious amongst us. And you see that among people. If you go into an office where maybe the boss is bad and isn't really a good boss, doesn't encourage the right things, lets too many bad things slide, Pretty soon, even good workers that come into the office get corrupted because they have a sense that the whole atmosphere is corrupt. And, and, and so in that way, sin is sort of contagious. Now, if you have a good boss and you have good workers, they all seem to elevate, don't they? They work as a team. People are happy in their job. Things go in the right direction. They get stuff accomplished. But of course, all of that is nested in bigger areas too, but sin is sort of a strange thing in that 
It's contagious among us. And that's what happens with Adam. If one man's sin put crowds of people at the dead-end abyss of separation from God, just think what God's gift poured out through one man, Jesus Christ, will do. So the idea is, Adam was powerful, Adam was great, but Jesus is greater and more powerful. And what we're going to see is that the potential is better, the potential up is better than the potential down. There's no comparison between that death-dealing sin and this generous, life-giving gift. That's what we see with someone, someone told me last week in the comments, they said, oh, you're not, you're not fully, I should probably read Les Miserables again, you're not fully bringing Jean Valjean, the picture of him, to the surface because Victor Hugo did that much more powerfully. He was, Jean Valjean was a good man stealing bread for a starving, for starving family. He becomes a greater man, giving whole groups of people opportunity for employment, and he himself rescuing the poor, all from some Monsignor's gift of candlesticks. And this is a sense of if. If Adam is, you know, if that slide is bad, how much better is the gift from Christ to lift us all? The verdict that no one's, the verdict on that, the verdict on that one sin was the death sentence. But again, it was sort of a slow death sentence. The verdict on the many sins that followed was this wonderful sentence. If death got the upper hand through one man's wrongdoing, can you imagine the breathtaking recovery life makes? Sovereign life in those who grasp with both hands this wildly extravagant life gift, this grand setting everything right, that the one man Jesus Christ provides. Wonderful paragraph by Eugene Peterson. Here it is in a nutshell. Just as one person did it wrong and got us into all this trouble with sin and death, another person did it right and got us out of it. But more than just getting us out of trouble, he got us into life. So think about that. Let's think about, let's, hear, let's call this the upper limit. And let's have the lower limit. If the lower limit is hell and the upper limit is heaven, we are usually middling around somewhere between, right? Ask any child, where's hell? They'll point down. Where's heaven? They'll point up. And, well, we're somewhere in between, right? 
So Adam brings us down. And Jesus brings us up. I mean, that's the basis of the story. Here is a nutshell. Just as one person did wrong and got us in all this trouble with sin and death, another person did it right and got us out of it. But more than just getting us out of trouble, he got us into life. So let's say you're here in the middle and you do something wrong and maybe you go to jail. That's not so good. So being out of jail is better than being in jail. All right, fair enough. And I'm sure there's gradients of jail. And there's things maybe worse than jail is just slavery or something. Something like that. So you have all these levels that things can get worse. But things can also get better. And, well, just being out of jail is better than being in jail. But maybe life is just sort of going through the motions. And things are hard. Maybe life is a little better than just that. And maybe there's some joy in life. And there's the warmth of family. And maybe you have a little bit of money that you can do some things with some people. But then you think, well, things can even be better than that. Maybe family can go really well. And maybe my relationships can go really well. And maybe lots of things can happen. And so, in fact, there's a lot of things that go here. And so we call this life. And we saw at the bottom, this is death. And heaven is sort of the absolute optimized perfection. And so what Paul is saying here is, but more than just getting us out of trouble, that's good. If we're in trouble, we certainly want to get out of trouble. But more than that, it got us into life. Not only did Jesus, so here's one thing. Let's talk about alcoholism. Let's say you're an alcoholic and you go down and down and down. And alcohol, John Verveke, one of the people that I talked to, calls this reciprocal narrowing. So. Every day you're just drinking, drink, drink, drink. Pretty soon your wife leaves you. Pretty soon, you know, the bank comes and takes your house and your car. Then you wind up on the street. And then maybe you get in trouble on the street and you wind up in jail. Okay, so there's losing life. Life is going down. Okay, well, let's. what does the reverse look like? Not drinking. Okay, well, not drinking. Okay. But not drinking isn't itself life. The problem with the alcohol was that it was destroying your life. Not drinking isn't itself life. But it's a platform for maybe potential for more life. So maybe if you stop drinking, you can fix up your relationship with your wife. And you can maybe get your house back. And maybe get a car back. And maybe the kids will talk to you again. And then maybe the kids will get their life a little straightened out and they'll get married and they'll have kids. And maybe you'll have grandkids because one of the things that I'm learning as I'm getting older and watching all of you, grandkids are a really cool thing. Grandkids are exciting. 
So maybe you'll have grandkids and maybe those grandkids will flourish. And maybe you'll get a chance, maybe at some point, to take a trip you've always wanted to. I mean, there could be lots of life. And so Jesus doesn't just help us not drink. <laughs> Jesus has more in store for us. One man said no to God and put many people in the wrong. Just see how just how powerful we are. See how powerful parents are. Parents are enormously powerful. When your parents made the good decisions that your parents made, you benefited from. The bad decisions that your parents made, you suffered from. It's not your fault, but it's just true, right? If your parents made wise investment, wise, wise job decisions and had more money to bring home, you as a child benefited. If your parents weren't good with money, you as a child suffered. One man said no to God and put many people in the wrong. One man said yes to God and put many people in the right. Adam, Jesus, Adam, Jesus, back and forth in this section. And again, going back to the beginning of the book of Romans, this is the, pro this is the process through the book, chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. And this is the dynamic of the macrocosm and the microcosm. Adam, Moses, Jesus, Jesus, all the way back out to all. That's how Paul's talking. All that passing laws against sin. Now that's Moses. Now again, nothing wrong with passing laws against sin. All of us are happy. We live in a culture that is downstream from the Mosaic Code. None of us wants to live in a world where the Ten Commandments, people thumb their noses at the Ten Commandments. None of us want that. We don't want to live amidst murder, theft, adultery. Um, we live amidst some of it, but it could get a lot worse. All that passing laws against sin did was produce more lawbreakers. Okay. Now, again, this, I know I'm going to get a lot of pushback online from this, but this is exactly what we're talking about here. We're talking about the difference between if you've been given, if you've been taught right from wrong, and you still do wrong, in a sense, you're more guilty of wrong than the person who was never taught. That's what we're talking about here. And it's an idea that all of us can grasp. All that passing laws against sin did was produce more lawbreakers. But sin didn't and doesn't have a chance in competition with the aggressive forgiveness that we call grace. Okay. I, I told a story a few weeks ago Let's, let's imagine a guy who's in his 70s. He's lived not a very good life. 
Maybe he was taught right from wrong, maybe he wasn't, but in his younger years, took advantage of women, lived for himself, has kids with two, three different women, didn't take much responsibility for any of those kids, never really treated the women that he was with very well, doesn't have good relations with his children, doesn't even know his grandchildren because they don't want even want to bring him bring him close to the grandchildren. He's getting up in his 70s, goes to the doctor. Doctor says, uh, you know, you've been smoking two packs a day for 50 years. Guess what? You have cancer. Surprise, surprise. Oh. And he remembers when he was a kid getting sent to Sunday school. And he learned about heaven and he learned about hell. And he thought, you know, I don't know if I really believe in hell, but if there's a chance, I should probably avoid it. So I'm going to go to that church down the road, and when they have the altar call, I'm going to go forward, and you know, I'm going to get my get-out-of-hell-free card by accepting Jesus, and then at least I'll have that base covered. So it goes down the road. He hears the altar call. He goes up in front. But after he did it, he's like, hmm, maybe I'll go next week. What could it hurt? The women hate me. My children don't like me. They won't even let me see my grandchildren. What else am I going to do on a Sunday morning? So he goes back. Here's a little more. Goes back. Here's a little more. Maybe the confession that he made the first week to just sort of get out of hell, bit by bit by bit, he not, only, he not only goes up in front of church and acts like he's sorry for the way he lived his life, maybe increasingly he is sorry for the way that he lived his life. And even though he's got cancer, even though he's carting around a little oxygen tank, Week after week after me, the message begins to sink in. And he goes to one of his ex-wives and says, you know what? I didn't really treat you very well. I'm sorry about that. And I didn't really support you when you had the kids. I'm sorry about that. And I want to try to make it right. So you'll be getting a little bit of money from me. It's not a lot but I want to give you something. And that ex-wife looks. Doesn't trust him. Says, okay. If, if, if checks come in the mail, I'll cash them. <laughs> and the checks keep coming. And he goes to another ex-wife. And he goes to one of his kids and says, I wasn't the best father. And I know that. And I'm sorry. I want to be a better father now. Let me know when, you know, let me know when your kid is playing in the school basketball team. I want to come to the game and I want to cheer him on. I know, I know you don't owe me anything. I know I haven't been good. And I know you don't, you don't trust me around your kid, but I'll just come to the basketball game and I'll just cheer him on. And there at the basketball game, there he is. 
and he's cheering the kid on. And then the kid sees it, and the father sees it and says, well, maybe next Christmas, Grandpa can come and have dinner with us. And he does. And he doesn't come in smelling of beer. And he's dressed okay. And he has table manners. And he even reads a story to the kids. And there's no drama, and he goes home. And the family says, wow. Bit by bit by bit by bit. Uh, he might only last a year or two because he's got cancer and he's dying. And you might say, well, gosh, 70 years of being a jerk and just two years of trying to make amends. Again, someone might look at that in the math and say, no, you can't make up for 70 years in two years. Maybe. But, sort of, right? So then when finally he dies, well, he's going to be able to have a funeral in a church. And some of the people in church are going to say, well, he wasn't really around less long enough. I sure wish he had lasted longer because he seemed to be a good guy. And the ex-wives and the kids are all thinking, uh, it wasn't so good. And then at his funeral, the people around the church start saying, you know, he came every Sunday. And when we had to put the parking lot in, well, he didn't have a lot of money, but he did his two cents. And he handed out bulletins on Sunday morning because he knew we needed someone to do that. And, 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 and then the, the wives and the kids are saying, he came to my kids' basketball game. And he bought some presents for my kids. And, you know, maybe most of his life he didn't do so well. But just at the end, my kids for a couple of years had a grandpa. And that means a lot to them. And that's what Paul is saying here. The sin is powerful. Yes. The damage from 70 years of being a jerk. Tremendous damage. I mean, could be that the ex-wives and the kids are going to be in therapy and having to undo all this stuff and all of that mess, but grace is so powerful that it can overcome even so much of this, this terrible stuff. All that passing laws against sin did was produce more law-breaking. You know, for years, fighting with his wives, his wives were saying, you should have been here. Yeah, he should have. You shouldn't have been sleeping around. No, you shouldn't have. You shouldn't have been drinking away the money that the kids could use. That's absolutely right. It's absolutely right. But none of those laws stopped him. He still wasn't there. He still slept around. He still drank the money away. The laws didn't stop it. Sin didn't and doesn't have a chance in competition with the aggressive forgiveness we call grace. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. All sin can do is threaten us with death, right? That's what the ex-wife would say. 
If you keep sleeping around, I'm out of here. He kept sleeping around. She was out of there. It's death. It's what death is. It's separation. That didn't stop him. It was grace. Grace came into his life. Now, now all of us listen to this story and think, yeah, but wouldn't it have been better if he had not done it? Yes. Wouldn't it have been better if he had maybe gone to church when he was 30 or 40 and figured that out then? Yes. I've got no question about that. That's not what we're talking about. Why didn't he turn around when he was 30 or 40? Why did he have to wait until the doctor told him he had cancer? I don't know. I don't know. If I knew, I'd go around zapping people. <laughs> and we try. I'm a minister. That's what I try to do. People come and talk to me. At some point, if they learn to trust me, they start confessing their sins. And I say, yeah, you know, um, maybe not cheating on your wife would be better than cheating on your wife. You could try that. <laughs> sometimes they listen, sometimes they don't. It's this miracle that gets in us at some point and turns us around. That's grace. We can argue with the timing. We'll have to argue with God. We don't know what he's doing. But stories like this are not uncommon. And that's why when I tell you, I just made up this story, right now out of my own mind, but it's a compilation of stories from how many people? I baptized two 70-plus-year-olds on that stage in church. And in some ways, what I just told you was part of their stories. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. All sin can do is threaten us with death, and that's the end of us. If you cheat on me one more time, I'm leaving. He does, and she's gone. Boom. Nothing. What does he do? Goes out and starts it again. Suckers some other poor women into marrying him. <laughs> and it all happens again. Grace, because God is putting everything together through the Messiah, invites us into life. A life that goes on and on and on, world without end. Amen. So we see that with our 70-year-old. So we live 70 years in sin and death. leaving a mess behind him. He lives two years with cancer, trying to do right, make amends, do what he can to all these people that he hurt. Can't make up for it, can't fix it, but that's a beautiful story. We love the story. When we hear the story, we're filled with hope, we're filled with grace. We're filled with even just the story has within it the potential and the possibility of transformation. So we love the story. But Paul says it's even better because 
at the funeral service of this guy, everybody in the church says, wow, he was only with us for a couple of years. Wish he was with us longer. Guess what? He is. Well, what do you mean he is? Well, the story is with us down here below longer, and that story will help others. Another 70-year-old will drag himself into that church with the same stupid ploy. <laughs> and the people in the church and the pastor is going to say, yeah, I've seen guys like you. There was a guy who came through here with the same ploy. And guess what? When he died, 100 people showed up at his funeral. You want to know some of this? People look at ministry at a bunch of things I do, and they say, I would never want to do that. And many of the things that I do that they look at and say, I'd never want to do that, they're wrong because there's a lot of joy and grace in doing it. Taking care of people, helping people. There's a, there's a lot of good stuff in taking care of people and helping people. That's really wonderful parts of ministry. The saddest thing in ministry, I often tell people I'd, I'd often rather do funerals rather than weddings. Not because funerals are better than weddings. Weddings are great, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully you have a lovely young couple and they go off and they have a great life together and they have children and everything's wonderful. That's what I hope in every wedding. But weddings, weddings are a mess. Everybody's sort of all over the place. Funerals, usually the chief mess maker can't make much more mess because they're in a box. <laughs> but if you do a funeral and there's a hundred people there and you have that time to have people come up and talk, and they say, wow, this person helped me out. They're always there for me. They gave me a word of encouragement. They blessed me. I'll do funerals like that every single day. They're wonderful, because the world is made better. It's the person's final gift to the world is the stories, and the stories live on and on and on. I love doing funerals like that. You know funerals that I hate? Nobody comes. Nobody can say anything. Because that was the 72-year-old that just died of cancer. Didn't bless his ex-wives. Didn't bless his children. Nobody wanted to come to the funeral because nobody's going to miss him. Those are the harder funerals. So, but the 70-year-old lives on past the grave. And so in the book of Revelation, when towards the end of the book of Revelation, they talk about the second death. There's a group of people who are not going to experience the second death. What does that mean? That means that they are going to as C.S. Lewis wrote, go further up and further in and to the blessings of God. Ah. And if in this world where, you know, I looked, I talked before about like potential, there's a limit to the potential here. And, and part of what I think the message of the gospel is, what Jesus says again and again is something like, and what he shows with his life is, if you're, the, if you're the son of God himself, and you live the best life possible, well, it looks like Jesus' life. And on one hand, you could say, wow, people were healed, miracles were done, 
multiples, multitudes were fed. That's awesome. That is awesome. It also ends with a cross and a grave, and then he ascends. And the end of the story is that the book of Revelation, a new heavens and a new earth come down, and he brings them down. What this means is that there's an upper limit in this world right here and now, but there's stages above that limit that we can live and participate in. And we have no idea what that is. We have no idea. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has in store for those who love him. In other words, all of the stuff in this world that we like, that are really good, a nice meal, a warm bed, children gathering for the holidays, boy, those are good. You know, it's funny that the older I get, the more good things I find. When I was a kid, or even when I was a young adult with my little children, when we would come home for home service and stay with my parents for a few months, my parents were over the moon. They loved it. Myself and my wife and our kids staying in the house for two, three months on end, I always thought, oh gosh, we're such an imposition. You know, they got to cook more, they got to clean more, the kids are making noise, making mess. My parents are like, love it, love it. Why? Well, now I understand why. I don't have any grandkids yet, but my wife and I, every week we look forward to, is Jared coming over? Is Maddie coming over? And men's group often we do prayers and, and concerns. Maury says, my son Paul was over this weekend. That's wonderful when the kids come back. You get to hear their stories. You see what they're doing. The kids can also be a source of misery. That's true too. <laughs> But I never know that I could feel this way about a little thing like the kids coming home. So it's like, oh, I could live 50 years and there's whole new ranges of joy in life that I don't know anything about. What ranges of life and joy are there beyond the grave in Christ in his inheritance that I know nothing about now. That's something to think about. I can't know them because I'm not there yet. You know, it's, it's sort of like I love to travel. And it's sort of like going to Yosemite for the first time. So my son Ben just took a little trip to Yosemite in the winter. My favorite time to go to Yosemite is in the winter. It's just beautiful with the rock and the snow and the evergreens and, and without the crowds. <laughs> the problem with Yosemite in the summer is the crowds. But you go to Yosemite for the first time and it's like, I didn't know rock could be so majestic. I didn't know river valleys could be so beautiful. Oh, well. There's all kinds of things we don't know yet because we only know what we know. This is a promise we've been given. And this is why Paul is so, and I, again, I love what Eugene Peterson does um, in the message here. Yeah, sin, death is all horrible stuff. But what we have promised from God is so much more. And 
Paul looks at Christ and says, this is the work that he's doing. And this is ours. Any comments or questions? Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the gift that we have in Christ. And during this Advent time, as we look forward to the celebration of Christmas and hopefully some family time, some time with friends, a little bit of feasting, may this give us a foretaste of what the banquet of the Lamb and our inheritance in Christ has to offer us. And we know, Lord, that we're sinful, foolish creatures often. And some of us have wasted time and wasted our lives chasing amusements that are, that are good, but maybe aren't as good as they could be. So help us, Lord, sober up and to look for you, and to hear your words of grace, and to begin to live a life worth living. Lord, this is a gift from you. May we receive it with joy. Hear our prayer. In the name of Jesus, amen.